For this is the will of God, your satisfaction, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Thank you, Dave. I have two ways to get up now, and I'm really excited about it. There's this way and that way. Wow, it's pretty cool. Come on, right? It's exciting. All right, whatever. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, my name is uh, Andrew Jones, and uh, if, you, if you don't know me, uh, I'm the campus pastor here at the Leawood campus. Uh, if you don't know me, there might be a reason you started attending during my sabbatical, and that's, the, that's I promise, the last time I'll say that I've been on a 12-week sabbatical and rubbing it in your face. So, um, I know what you're all thinking. It's the number one question that I've gotten since I came back from sabbatical. The number one question is, how annoyed was Becca with you after 12 weeks? That's my wife, by the way. Becca's my wife. And I said, not that much. We really felt your prayers that way. Thank you for, for praying for us. Okay, in all seriousness, sabbatical was amazing. It was awesome. Uh, I cannot overstate how amazing it was. And I, 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 just so you know, I wrote a, a few quick thoughts while they were fresh on my mind. And we have several staff actually on sabbatical this summer. And so I wrote a few thoughts down uh, for a future blog post that's going to go on our website. And it's more than I can share here. So if, you, if you're interested in that, check that out. It'll be up in the next couple of weeks, I think. Uh, but I just want to say up front, uh, thank you again for your tremendous grace and generosity in allowing your pastors to take that sabbatical time. It's an incredible gift. Okay, I'm going to give you a few highlights from my sabbatical, and then we'll talk about the Bible eventually, I promise. So here's, here's the few highlights. So number one was uh, Becca and I got to take a trip to Cancun together, which is great. Uh, it was hard, you know, it, it's like someone has to do this hard work, so we decided to do that. Uh, and it was, it, you know, it was great. Um, second highlight was being able to be home with my kids before my, my daughter starts kindergarten and life completely changes and schedules change. And it was a really sweet time. Uh, to be home with my kids uh, more than I normally would get to and just build those memories uh, before a crazy fall uh, for my family. And then my third highlight was a personal retreat that I took. I just got alone by myself for, for three days, and it was a very refreshing and renewing time. Uh, and if you've never done that before, that sounds intimidating. I really encourage you to, to think about incorporating that in, into your life. I know it's hard to pull off. It, it was for us, but uh, it was so worth it for me. It's something I hope to keep doing uh, even in the years to come. And then the, my final highlight, my final highlight from sabbatical uh, was coming back and preaching my first sermon on lust. That was a final highlight <laughs> of my sabbatical time. And it's like, can't you just picture Tom, right? He's looking at the series on vices and he's like, which one of these do I not want to do? <laughs> that one. Andrew, you get that one. It's like, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Tom. Okay. So, so seriously, we, we did not mean to put this on Father's Day. <laughs> Some of you maybe came in thinking, what a Father's Day gift, uh, Andrew. Thank you so much. Um, that is not, we did, it's, it's the last of the vices. It just happened to fall 
on today, and uh, at least it won't be boring, is my hope. Uh, that's, that's one good thing. Uh, and uh, maybe, just to be a little more serious, maybe some of you, you, you came in this morning and you either saw this title or you, you, know, you read the email I sent out earlier or you heard the scripture reading and you thought, I got to get out of here. This is just the last thing I want to hear a sermon about. And I, I understand that this can be an awkward subject, but I've really been thinking a lot about that this week. And it is an awkward subject, but it really shouldn't be. I mean, here's, here's the thought experiment I, I did this week about why, why, what is it about, what's so different about this? And if, you know, we've been in the vices, so we talked about gluttony last week. And if, if I'd come up and started that sermon by saying, hey, you know, sometimes I use, I have a food problem. I, I, I eat for the wrong reasons and I, and I eat the wrong things and it's, it's a struggle for me. Some of you would probably kind of laugh and say, yeah, you know, everybody does that. So, you know, me too. If I got up here and started a sermon on lust and say, sometimes I have a problem with lust, it would just suck the air out of the room, right? We treat this so differently. So I wanted to start off by saying to all of us, that to, to the best we can to just take a deep breath together and know that God wants to speak to us and it's going to be okay. We need to hear from him on this. And, and, and I'm sensitive to the fact that there are people in this room who are struggling with deep guilt and shame around this topic, whether because of our own choices, our own lustful choices and decisions in life that we're, that we're paying for, we're still paying for, maybe no one knows about them, and also because of the, we've, we've been the a victim of someone else's lust, someone else's uh, vice, someone else's sin, and, and there's a deep shame that comes along with that, and I want to take that very seriously, but, but I don't want us to hide from this which we can do even on a Sunday morning. You, you don't have to listen. You don't have to receive. And I don't want that to happen. So what I want to do is I want to start together by praying to God that God would break down these barriers that any of us may come in with when it comes to this topic. So if you would, please bow your heads. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we need your word. We need the wisdom of your design for life. And that includes every part of life, including uh, our bodies and our sexuality. And we need your wisdom. So, Father, as we open your word, uh, help us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and, and hearts to receive what you would teach us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's never a good time to take a sip of water. You ever notice that? Okay, anyway, here's why it's important to talk about lust uh, in general, um, at least what I think. I think it's, we are so confused about what sex really is. That's why we have, to, we have to talk about this. We're confused about what sex really is. On the one hand, kind of culturally, we are told that sex is everything. Your worth as a human being is very much tied up in your sex appeal. If you want to be desirable, if you want to be loved, you've got to look a certain way. You've got to do certain things. And even if, you know, and, and denying yourself sex is like the weirdest thing today. People look at you like, What? Why would you deny yourself this? No matter, how, I mean, no matter how old you are, what your marital status is, it's like, why wouldn't you be doing this as much as possible? It's the, mo it's the, it's the pinnacle of human pleasure. Why, would, why wouldn't you keep doing this? It's everything on the one hand. On the other hand, it's nothing. We kind of live in a time where we're told sex is nothing special. It's, it's an appetite, just like uh, food or drink. And you shouldn't be ashamed of the way you want to gratify that desire that you have, and it's not, it's not a big deal. No harm, no foul, right? As long as it's two consenting adults, it's fine. Do, do what you want. As long as you're not hurting anybody, it's nothing. It's nothing. 
And the advertising we, we watch and the, and the movies and, and the shows we binge on, right, it, a lot of them are selling this thing, this lust thing. Like, hey, this is what love really is. This is what it looks like. Or, hey, this is what, you need, this is what beauty looks like. This is what you need to look like if you want to be happy. And, and it's, it's not just men who are confused about this. Sometimes we come to a topic like this and we think this is like the man problem. Men have a lust problem, but that's not true. This is an everybody problem. Women, too, are having their sexuality manipulated for the purposes of lust. And uh, just, I mean, the largest growing demographic of, of pornography users is not men. It's women. Roughly 20% of women in the U.S. have admitted to, to having some kind of pornography addiction. And, and I don't, I, I'm not lifting up pornography as the, as the worst form of lust, okay? There's many ways we can lust. It's just one of, it's just one of the main ways we lust. We'll, we'll get to, to more in, in a minute. And I don't say these things to shame anyone here today. I really don't. But we, just to point out that married, single, man, woman, young, old, this is an everybody thing. So don't check out. Children, too, have greater and greater access to the internet. And do you know that the, the average age a child in the U.S. will be exposed to a, a pornographic image? It's, it's 11 years old. And that number is going down, not up. So we've got to take this seriously. We have to take this seriously. And, and you see over and over again, at every stage and every age, we're, we're being told to settle for lust. Like this thing, this lust thing, this image, this experience is everything, right? It's, it's, it's the pinnacle. And people are buying it. Like, yeah, this, this is what it means to be a human being. This, this is my flourishing. This is what I want. And it's, it's wrong. That's not true. In fact, when you, <laughs> sex, when it's done God's way, is so much better than lust, See, my, my hope is today that we don't settle for lust because lust is one of those things that doesn't, it's, it's, it, that it's wrong, not because it thinks too highly of sex, but it thinks too little of it. It belittles it. And it robs us of the real joy we are meant to have by God's design. So don't settle for lust. That's my hope and my prayer. Don't settle for lust. Because sex and sexual desire is fundamentally good. And that's really the first thing I want to talk about is that sex is good. And this is the least controversial main point I've ever put on a slide at Christ Community, right? <laughs> oh, okay. What, what becomes controversial about this statement is why. Why is it good? And the biblical worldview, the biblical framework is that sex is good not primarily because it is pleasurable, though it is that. It is primarily good because God made it. He designed it. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And he presents, you know, the picture you get is he presents Eve to Adam like in a wedding ceremony. And he's, he's the father giving away the bride. And he looks at both of them and he says, you two are for each other. Emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, you're for each other. Enjoy, love each other. That's the first picture you get of sexuality in the whole Bible. There's a whole book in the Bible. Uh, it's called The Song of Songs or The Song of Solomon. You ever you heard of that book? Um, it's a, it, the whole book is about two people having sex. It's the whole book. 
And when my Bible teacher told me that, I said, I want to be a pastor. This is the moment. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There was more than just that, that I want to be a pastor. But God gave each one of us a sexuality. He gave us sexual desire. He gave us a gender. And it's good. God loves that. God loves sex. You ever thought about that? It's his idea. God loves sex. And in certain passages, he commands sex. And if you were raised in the church, which sometimes isn't great at having this conversation, that may be the weirdest two things you've ever heard. Like, God loves sex and he commands it in certain passages of the Bible? Yes, he does. He loves it. But here's the thing. God loves sex, but he loves it. He designed it with boundaries. This is the part that often gets us in trouble. Okay, like any good designer of anything, God knows best what sex is for and what it is not for, what it can do and what it cannot do. And that's why Paul, in our passage in verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And now, Paul, the Christian ethic is not, Paul does not say that you abstain from sex. That is not the Christian ethic. It's that you abstain from immorality, that you stay within the boundaries. That's what Paul's saying. Stay within God's boundaries. And we know from the creation design in Genesis 1 and 2, which we've already talked about, that the, God's design for sex, and by the way, Jesus reaffirms that design in Matthew 19, that God's design for sex is the culmination of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. That has been the design from the very beginning, and God called that design very good. He delights in that design. And here's why we should not settle for the vice of lust. Because when you understand what the original design for sexuality was, you begin to see that lust is nothing more than a distortion of what is very good. That's all it is. Lust is a distortion of God's good design, and it ruins sex. It ruins it. All lust really does in the end is destroy good sex. Lust destroys good sex. So how does it do that? Well, we have to talk about what is lust. That can mean a lot of different things. The first thing I want to point out is that lust is desire out of control. Lust is desire out of control. Now remember, sexual desire is not the problem. God gave you that desire, but he gave it to you to point you to another person namely your spouse. See, desire and pleasure are not, are not an end in and of themselves by God's design. They are a means to intimacy with someone else in a self-giving love relationship. That's the design. And sex is supposed to be where we experience the real pleasure of giving pleasure to someone we love in a selfless way. Right? So sex, good sex, is desire under control by real love for the other. That's the design. Okay, lust is desire out of control. It's like a fire, right? Fire within a boundary is a good thing, like a fire pit. It's useful, it's helpful. When the fire goes outside that boundaries, it's destructive and, and terrifying and destroys everything in its path. That's what lust is like. It's desire for desire's sake. It's sex, not for the pleasure of another, but for me. Right? Lust doesn't want a person, it wants it. I want it. Give it to me. 
See the difference? And this is why, again, what is so absolutely dangerous about pornography, because it, it's the practice of everything wrong with lust. It's like the extreme version of lust. And like I said, we can cultivate a sexual desire outside of God's design in lots and lots of ways. But I, I mean, I'm pretty convinced that pornography is the most pernicious and prevalent one in our society today. So I want to spend some time on it. Pornography uh, perfectly summarizes this desire out of control. It's like the embodiment of lust, right? You're using the image of another to gratify yourself. And we've been promised in the midst of this kind of internet pornography proliferation that there's nothing wrong with it, there's no harm, no foul, but we have been lied to. That is not true. Porn is destroying good sex. It is. It's destroying marriages, relationships, friendships, people. And Naomi Wolf, who is, as far as I know, not a believer, she's a feminist critic, and she, she, even she recognizes what pornography is doing to our sexuality. Listen to what she says. She says, For the first time in human history, the pornographic image's power and allure have supplanted that of real naked women. Today, real naked women are just bad porn. That's incredibly damaging observation that she's made. Now, she's writing kind of from one perspective of gender. This is, this is true for both the genders. We, 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 pornography is uh, taking away our sexual desire for another person. We are now in an age where people don't, they're, for their own sexual gratification, they don't even want another person, just an image. You see how disordered that's becoming, the damage it's doing. And, and again, I know there are men and women in this room right now who struggle with pornography, and I do not say this to shame you or to judge you, but we have to look at this in the eye. We have to name this for what it is. It's incredibly destructive. Lust is our, is, is our God-given desire out of control. And it's also, and, and maybe even more important than that, lust is, is desiring, it's wanting pleasure without covenant. Lust is wanting pleasure. It's pleasure without covenant. And this is important because may, there may be some of you out here thinking, okay, I get that using someone for my own you know, sexual gratification is wrong. But what about two consenting adults? What, why are Christians so caught up in this whole uh, you have to be married first thing, right? I mean, I, I get that question a lot. And it's a good question. Here's why. It's, it has to do with this. One of God's most important boundaries for sex is that it is not allowed before two people have covenanted, have promised each other to each other in marriage, covenanted. It's not allowed before that moment. In other words, the Bible says you cannot, you should not act out physically what is not already true emotionally, spiritually, economically, financially, and every other lee you can think of. By God's design, sex is the culmination of all other unity between two people. It's the last thing you share, not the first. You cannot give your, God says, do not give your body to someone that you cannot also give your whole life to. Because that is what he wants in our sexuality. And by the way, this is how God receives you. What if God gave parts of himself to you? How miserable would that be? When God invites you into a relationship with himself, does he say, you can have my forgiveness, but you cannot have my love or my blessing? He doesn't, he doesn't share himself in parts. And that's exactly what God wants us to not do. He wants this relationship to point 
to how he relates to us. And this is why the best sex can only happen in the context of marital trust. Trust. It should not surprise us that studies continue to confirm that the best sex happens in monogamous marriage, not in promiscuity, because that's what it was designed to do. And lust, another way of putting this, is that it wants, it wants a pleasure without a promise. It wants sex without consequence, without responsibility. And, and the, the image that comes to mind is that lust is like sexual bulimia. You ever think about that? It's like sexual bulimia. It's like eating all the ice cream you want and then throwing it up because you don't want to deal with the consequences of what you've done. You don't want the responsibility. You don't want that to, come to, to become a part of you. I want the pleasure, but not, but not the responsibility, not, not the commitment. And, and, and we look at that as a society. We look at bulimia and say, that is a disorder. That is an appetite out of control. But then we look at sex and we say, that's no harm. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And it does do harm. And in the end, when we indulge our sex without covenant, when we, we indulge in that way, it, it makes us lonelier than we were before. It undoes the intimacy it was designed to do. And even George Leonard, who was a, a leader in the sexual liberation movement of the 1960s, he kind of recanted a lot of what he taught at that time about 20 years later. And he, he put it this way, this quote, he says, I finally come to see that every game has rules and sex has rules. And that unless you play by the rules, you'll find that sex can create a depth of loneliness that nothing else can. He says, don't settle for this. He's, George Leonard is saying that. Don't settle for this. There's something better out there for your sex life. And finally, when, when overindulged in, lust is not f- free sex, it's actually slavery. Lust becomes slavery. And, and there are a few appetites in our world that I have seen that have the power to enslave like lust. It's like once it gets its hooks in you, it is so difficult to shake loose. And whole societies can become captivated by this vice in particular. And uh, ours is one I would say is captivated by this vice of lust. And, and yet we try to say it's okay. It's, it's for our good. It's, it's, we're, we're, we're thriving in this. And C.S. Lewis, like, like he usually does, has this great, has this great, um, picture to dispel that myth that we're fine. He says, imagine you're dropped into a world where, you know, in all the college dorms, there are pinups of, not of uh, men and women, but of hamburgers and hot dogs and, and pizza slices and, and student, you know, they, people go from room to room just drooling over these pictures of food, right? He says, imagine there people go on the internet and search for food images and they save them onto a password secure folder on their laptop. And then as Lewis says, as only he can. He said, you know, imagine they go to a theater to watch someone slowly unveil a plate of bacon. <laughs> right? He says, what would you say to such a world? You would say, that's not okay. That's not normal. You're, you're a slave to this. You can't stop looking at it. And you see, again, this is exactly what we can do with the human body and with lust, with this appetite. And I love that word picture. Lust can do the same thing. When, when sexual pleasure becomes the goal, rather than intimacy, which is what sex was designed to do, your sexual desire and, and, and pleasure actually diminishes. 
and they've done studies on this. You actually, you need more stimuli, you need uh, more escalation uh, to get the same high that you had before. And like I said, their whole book's on the similarities of what the brain does uh, with lust uh, and with drugs. It's a very similar dynamic. And before you know it, you, you aren't sexually liberated, you're enslaved. And it, you actually can experience pleasure less and less in your life. It, it actually deadens you to the beauty of a sunset or a good film or a song. You're less able to experience pleasure in other parts of your life when you become enslaved to this. You, are, you become consumed by your own gratification and you, it's like every room you enter, you are scanning bodies for a hit of dopamine. That's no way to live. Lust does not think too highly of sex. That is not the problem. It thinks too little of it, and it destroys good sex. It destroys the kind of sexuality that God wants you to have. So what do, so what do we do? What do we do about it? And I want to get a little practical here, right? We've been in a series on vices and their corresponding virtues, and the, and the virtue that helps us combat lust is called chastity. Chastity, which is a word your grandma taught you about 50 years ago. <laughs> I know. It's a dated word. And, it, and it, it's, a, honestly, in my experience, it's a negative word. I've not heard it used positively very often. Uh, and I think that's because a lot of us, we hear that word and we think of it as a divine list of, of do's and don'ts, right? Or of thou shalt nots. That's what chastity is primarily when we hear it. And, and at its worst, and I went to a private Christian school, so I've experienced the worst. Chastity is a pharisaical parsing of what is and is not allowed on your first date, you know? It's like, can we hold hands or not? Is spaghetti fingers okay? Is that too far? (laughs) Chastity, I kid you not. (laughs) Chastity is so much more than that. It's more than that. So what I wanna do, I'm gonna give you a definition from Rebecca DeYoung, who has kind of helped us along in this this series. It's a bit wordy, but I think we need it to then understand, uh, I'm gonna kind of rephrase it, okay? So here's what she says. She says, chastity is a project of becoming a person who can selflessly appreciate good and attractive things by keeping those goods ordered to the good of the whole person and his or her vocation to love. Now, that's a lot, and I actually cut that down. It was longer than that. So here, let me rephrase it, okay? In other words, chastity is becoming a person who can appreciate the good and the beautiful in all of life, including physically, out of a motivation of selfless love and not selfish consumption. That's what chastity is. And that's why chastity is not just for single people. Chastity is a Christian virtue, married or single. It's for everyone. And when we practice chastity, it can, it can begin to save our sex lives. Chastity can save our sex lives. And it begins, chastity does, it begins with this one important truth. I want to start here, which is that God calls you holy when you are his. When you are his, God calls you, he declares you holy, no matter what your sexual history is this morning. Married, single, addicted, divorced, it doesn't matter. When you give your life to Christ, he declares you holy. It starts, that's why Paul says, you have, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holy, he's called you holy. He's in verse seven of our passage. 
Paul says, you are holy, so act like it. So practice holiness is his point. No, no discussion of virtue, I want to point out, is Christian. There's lots of people talk about virtue. It's, a very, it's actually a very popular topic right now. Uh, lots of people talk about virtue, but it's not a Christian discussion of virtue until you, you receive the good news that you are declared holy by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Even in your mess, even in your sin, no matter how you come to him. Okay, that is the great news that we all need on this journey to virtue. And as we internalize that truth, that we are declared holy, we are then more and more able to actually practice chastity in our sex lives. And we do that second, so first, you're, you're declared holy. We do that second for, by fighting shame. Chastity fights shame. And you know, I mentioned this early on this morning, right, that I had to how weird, we treat this vice so differently than, than others. And, and this, you know, of all the vices and virtues that we've done over the last several weeks, this is the one I had to send an email out about. And I'm glad I did it. I know why I did it. But that says something, doesn't it? Of how we look at this vice and the shame and the awkwardness that we built around it. And you know, uh, it's interesting, of all the vices, uh, Christian moral teachers for centuries always put gluttony and lust at the bottom of this list. Do you know why? Because compared to the rest, they're not nearly as dangerous. Pride, greed, wrath, envy. Not to say that gluttony and lust aren't there incredibly dangerous, but, but they are distortions of desires that God gave you. You're designed for sex. You're designed for food, but you're not designed for pride or greed. These are incredibly dangerous vices. They are unnatural to you. There's a there's a reason Jesus tells the Pharisees, who are the most sexually pure Jews and the most sexually pure culture at the time. There's a reason Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of God than you. Right? Is their pride. Incredibly dangerous. It can keep you much farther from God than lust. So, so what is it about lust that makes it so powerful, because it is powerful. What is it? And here's, here's my best guess. It's because lust, lust's best friend is shame. Lust and shame, right? It's because when I was nine years old and I saw my first pornographic image and my body responded, which it's designed to do, I was too ashamed to talk to my parents about it. How many stories in this room begin that way? You're not designed... You, <laughs> And it's because lust, unlike the other vices in some ways, it convinces you that you cannot ask for help, that you're disgusting, and that God would never want to talk to you about this, and he's disgusted by you. Lust tells you these lies, and then there's shame, and then you don't ask for help, and then you slowly die. Chastity is the discipline to fight shame. So I encourage you this morning, get accountability in your sexual life. Get some friends around you of the same gender who can ask you what is happening in your sexual life. And for goodness sake, you know, get an internet software uh, filter system. Get it. There's Ever Accountable, there's X3 Watch. I use Covenant Eyes on every device I own, on my computer and my phone. 
it filters what I can access, and it also sends a report to people of my choosing to say, here's what I looked at this week. You know, look at what I did. And I do that for two reasons. One, because I want to draw the line uh, as far from the cliff of lust as I possibly can. And two, because it fights shame. Right? It brings to light the things that shame wants to feed on to keep me in darkness or keep you in darkness. So get accountability. And parents, and I'm speaking to myself as a parent, talk to your kids regularly about their bodies and their sexuality. You know, I was just at Plugged In two weeks ago, and the author Jim Burns was here, and he talked, he was, he was graphic, but he said, you have got to tell your young kids about this. Teach them what their body is. Teach them what sexuality is. <clears throat> and, and he says, teach it early. Teach it that sex is not shameful. Teach them that sex is good, it has boundaries, but it's good, it's a gift, so that they begin to fight shame. Okay, we could talk more about that, but I got to move on. Second is love others more than yourself. This is the other practice of chastity. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, thanks, Andrew, that's really creative. Uh, love others more than yourself. Okay, but here's, here's the part that hit me, is we don't often put lust and loving your neighbor together. And yet, that's exactly what chastity is. It's if, if, if lust is loving yourself more than others, then chastity is loving others more than yourself, in particular when it comes to your sexual desires, loving people more than yourself. Now, if you're married, this looks different. If you're married and, and you're only having sex with your spouse, you can still have a lust problem. You can still be using your spouse at times for your own gratification and your own pleasure. So try having sex with the express purpose of bringing pleasure and joy to your spouse. That's chastity. This is also chastity. Love and enjoy your spouse outside of the bedroom. Appreciate their character and their service to you and your family. Listen to them, encourage them, compliment them, forgive them. That's all chastity. Appreciate them as human beings in the image of God and not as sexual objects for your pleasure. And in the covenant of marriage, that is the soil from which good sex grows best, is that kind of selfless love. Now, if you're single, <clears throat> here's what I want to say is cultivate selfless friendship in your life. It's really the same idea, and married should do this too, right? To learn to love people in and of themselves, and not as objects for your gratification or your ambition in life. And unless you end up marrying one of those friends, this will not culminate in sex, but it is the same soil of love necessary for marriage. Chastity is not simply protecting your physical boundaries of your sexuality, but actively loving the people and friends around you. And one of the best ways to combat the lies of lust and shame is to have strong friendships around you when life gets tough that you can lean on. Love others more than yourself. Third, practice purity of the mind. This is chastity as well. And Jesus taught us that lust does not begin in the act, it begins in the mind and the heart. Right? If you look at someone with the purpose of lust or lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart is what he taught. So lust begins in the mind. So watch what you watch. Watch what you watch. Paul puts chastity so well in this passage. 
Philippians 4.8, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's chastity. So is, is the book you're reading honorable and noble and just? Is it cultivating chastity, the ability to love good for its own sake and not for your own? What about the shows you watch? What about the movies you watch? Now, I'm, I'm harping on images in particular here because images are incredibly powerful. There is a whole industry called the advertising industry that knows we can cultivate desire in you and you're not even conscious of it through the images that you see. So don't, don't be naive. Images matter. So watch what you watch. What are you putting into your mind? Fill your eyes and your mind with thoughts of good things, beautiful things, noble things. And if we do that, we'll find less and less time and desire to look at, to, to settle for lustful things because they aren't as good. Okay, final point. Chastity, you have to be disappointed. If you want to practice chastity, you have to be disappointed. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to be totally honest with you, um, and it's nothing you guys probably don't already know. Even the best sex in the best marriage in the prime of life is not enough to satisfy you. It's not enough. If you're married, if you're single, if you're young or you're old, it does not matter. None of us is totally satisfied with our sex lives, and that's okay. God actually made it that way, to be that way, because sex is meant to point to a consummation, a contentment, a relationship, an intimacy that has not yet happened. In the Christian view, it is not, I, and I'm not trying to be too graphic here, but, but here the biblical story culminates in a wedding night coming when we will stand before a perfect lover completely and spiritually and emotionally naked and vulnerable, and he will say to us, you are perfect and you are without blemish, and I delight in you. And I know that sounds really weird. I sent this to Randy, our worship pastor, and he highlighted this and said, this is weird. And I said, no, Randy, you're weird. <laughs> I know it's weird. It sounds weird, but it, the image, it's meant to arrest you. It's meant to shake you and say, this is the way I love you with this intensity. And Jesus could have, he could have described his cosmic victory, which is what the book of Revelation is all about. He could have described that victory any way he wanted to. And there are lots of images he uses, but the most important one and the last one the one he wants on your mind as you close that book is his victory is a bridegroom returning for his bride, the church. That is how he describes it. So you are not satisfied with your sex life. The universe is not satisfied with your sex life. Because there's a wedding coming where there's a marriage that will change the fabric of reality itself. And this is why ultimately in the Christian life, it does not matter if you have a spouse or not, if you are married or single, because there is one bridegroom who can make you holy. Only one. Only one who can remove every blemish, every wrongdoing, every mistake, every sin, and see you for who you are completely vulnerable in a way that we can't even fathom right now. And he'll look and he'll say, I delight in you. 
That's what we look forward to, no matter what your sexual struggle is. There's our freedom. Lust has nothing on that. So don't settle for it. Look to Christ, come to him, and receive him. Let's pray to him now. Father, we come to you this morning with lots of baggage, lots of baggage. Every single person here with pain and brokenness and bitterness and lust. And many of us are ashamed. We are too ashamed to ask for help. We are too ashamed to ask for forgiveness. Some of us are too ashamed to even talk to you anymore. And yet you promise that when we come to you in faith and repentance, you wash us white as snow. So Lord, we need you. And as we worship, as we continue to worship, I pray that your love and your comfort would surround us and speak to us wherever we are this morning on this. And we, we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.